Hello, you're listening to Future Artifacts FM, a radio show hosted by Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. Earlier this year, several radio frequencies were discovered airing a collection of broadcasts. At first, they sounded like regular news stories and interviews. They felt familiar, but also not quite belonging to our present. Slowly, the listeners came to believe that what they were listening to did indeed belong to their world, just not their time. They were looking into the future through the mundane edges of radio recordings and public service announcements. While this material is still being meticulously studied by researchers in various universities and museums, your hosts have managed to gain access to this collection to air a selection of these broadcasts for you, our listeners. For full disclosure, we will not be sharing this collection with you, as this introduction is based on a fictional event. In this monthly broadcast, Future Artifacts FM, we will present speculative fiction pieces by artists and writers, followed by conversation with hosts Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. The program will focus on fictional works intended for broadcast, such as radio plays or fictional interviews, to carve out a better understanding of the now by exploring various interpretations of the future. In this month's episode, we will be listening to Nina Davies' work, Beyond the Virus, which is a fictional interview that takes a series of a podcast. The work is about 16 minutes long. Before we start listening to your work, Nina, is there anything you would like us to know? No, I think uh, just sit back, relax, and we'll see you on the other side for a conversation. See you soon. Good afternoon, listeners. As usual, I'm your host, Pete Langley, and you're listening to the Beyond the Virus podcast. Today, we have a guest that I'm super excited to have come in for a chat. Most of you have probably heard of him before. He used to play for the Vancouver Canucks and was banned from the NHL after he allegedly broke another player's arm. Since then, he's had a successful career as a data scientist in foresting operations and is now joining us today to talk to us about his work and experiences living in zombie communities. Jamie Lewis, thank you for joining us. Hey Pete, uh, thanks for having me in. It's been great to be here. Uh, I'll have to admit it's been uh, it's been strange to be uh, speaking. Yeah, I bet. I have to ask you, are these literally the first few words you've spoken in a few years? Well, not exactly. Uh, I broke my silence about a year ago to attend interviews similar to this. Um, and on my way here, I, uh, I did have to practice. So I gave my mom a call and went into a few shops to order some coffees and snacks just to get back into the headspace. <laughs> right, right, right. I got headspace or, or mouth space. Exactly, Pete. You get it. Uh, how was that, though? Because you seem fine right now. Did it just come back straight away? Well, y- yes and no. Uh, it's not so much that I had a hard time finding words, but it wasn't. Uh, it was that I found myself adding extra facial expressions on top, uh, which in my head is adding an extra layer of information, but <laughs> um, it wasn't translating at all. 
Um, I imagine uh, there might also be some information that gets lost in this interview, no doubt. <laughs> Uh, well, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for those interactions you had there. Uh, so before we delve into everything, I have to ask, is zombie a term you're comfortable with? Sure, sure. I imagine some of you will be familiar with the term zombie. They're communities of people that don't speak and like communicate with each other through nonverbal languages. Is that correct? That is indeed. Now, when I think of the term zombie, the first thing that comes to mind is footage on the news of people intermittently moving between normal speed and slow motion uh, on the streets, and some people uh, just moving slowly all the time. Yes, well, uh, I guess this is a very common understanding of us and of why we were given the name zombies in the first place. Mm -hmm. So do you guys refer to yourself as zombies? Well, don't forget we don't use words. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, of course. Uh, but but we but we don't refer to ourselves as zombies. No. Uh, some people used to refer to themselves as dancers, but that term's a bit uh, outdated now. Wait, sorry. So, do you read? Like, how how are you aware of this term even? So, I think the first misconception about zombie communities is that we have rules or that we function similarly to a cult. Uh, people are totally allowed to engage with language as much as they would like and in our physical communities it's quite common uh that people go home and read okay so people people still read books <laughs> i mean they might uh i mean firstly i'll ask you do people in in your world read books but so what i mean by read is that people will still go on their phones or computers if they have them read words and maybe engage in typing messages um but i notice that more with people my age um as we have our feet still planted in both words so to say and not so much for the youngsters Right, okay, so I'm, I just want to take it back a few steps, because you say both worlds, and I think for our listeners, uh, I would like to, for you to explain how this new way of living even came about, because it's rare to get the chance to, to actually interview a zombie, and I'd just like to know more. Yeah, that's great. So these communities are cropping up at a rapid pace, and I know you're, you're say, not a cult, but it seems strange that people are radically changing the way they live and then congregating in these like areas around metropolitan sites. You know, even as a member of these communities, it's hard to say how, how they start up because each one kind of has its own story. Uh, but one thing I can say is that it's all gradual. Uh, some of the first communities began with a group of teenagers that lived in a house uh, house altogether to create content for social media. Uh, it was used, it, so it's what used to be called content houses. Uh, people would make short dances all day and broadcast them online. Content houses still exist, don't they? Yeah, for sure. And uh, most, most zombie communities don't start up this way anymore, as these houses are elitist organizations run by corporations, and they refuse to admit that we share any similarities. They're not similarities. I'd say they, you guys couldn't be more different. Well, yeah. I mean, we are different in the sense that they seem more integrated into, into society than we are, uh, but their day-to-day -day living is the exact same as ours. Um, instead of speaking non-verbally with people physically like we do, uh, they do it solely with an online network uh, sharing videos of themselves. Right. So, so you're, you're saying it's, it's like the old model. <laughs> 
Well, kind of, yeah. Uh, living in a shared house is sort of a community already. Um, but the but the reason some of these houses were considered the first zombie communes was during the end of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of these kids living in content houses were extremely young just before the pandemic. And they were the people that kind of invented, invented the languages that we use today. No way. You know, I, I had, had no idea that that's where it came from. Yeah, and you, you also probably didn't know that because the, the language has changed so much since then, uh, as well as these stories are kind of covered up. We obviously are not always performing the language within a little rectangle, but it's mostly in our, I don't know, uh, environment. Yeah, right, right. Um, but continue with what you were saying um, about the pandemic and the kids being so young. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if you remember, but video sharing apps were really big during that time. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was studying English Lit at university and didn't have too much time for it, but I remember that's when they really took off. Well, when the pandemic was finally over, I'm sure you remember this, uh, we were all encouraged to go out, see friends, go to the cinema and spend our money uh, to try and salvage what was left of our economies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was super fun. Everything was really cheap. But then again, uh, I, I was broke and I didn't have a job, so probably worked out about the same. I think I think for people our age and older, it was a hoot. Um, but, but for these kids who were maybe about a decade younger than, than us, it was a completely different story. Uh, a lot of the kids didn't have the social capabilities anymore, and the pandemic had hindered a crucial learning curve, which a lot of us take for granted. You know what? I, I always thought about that. Um, I really felt for the teenagers or people in their in their younger 20s. Well, I, I should probably say now that uh, this didn't happen to everyone, as I'm sure as I'm sure you know. It generally happened to kids in affluent areas uh, where families who had parents who could work from home or even afford not to work. Um, and these houses also had enough space to afford kids privacy to make their videos. Um, but again, this is this is generally. Uh, but anyways, uh, these kids found it extremely difficult to reintegrate into societal norms that existed before the pandemic. Many of them would in fact stay at home, continuing to make and watch videos while others just carried on with their lives. Right, right, yeah, I think I remember this, that, but, but integration schemes were like introduced around this time. Well, yeah, yeah, and some of these some of these schemes worked, uh, which are probably the ones that you, you heard of, and these gen... Uh, these were generally for the younger kids, like 14 and younger. But groups that consisted of people above those ages were extremely hard to control because they didn't necessarily live with their parents anymore. Uh, what, so they were just a bit more boisterous? Sort of. Uh, I, mean, I mean, what happened in most of these classes for all age groups was that the kids were, were, were able to communicate silently with each other during the classes. And I imagine they weren't passing notes around either. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, it, it took the leaders... Uh, of these sessions months before they realized that the students were sort of having conversations during class through facial expressions and small arm and feet movements. But surely, I mean, this, this was a good thing, right? Like the kids were communicating in real life with each other, which is what the scheme sought out to accomplish. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess uh, I, I think the, the part, the participants ended up finding it so confusing. Uh, they were they were asked to come into these spaces and connect, um, and that's exactly what they did. I mean, yeah, but that was confusing. Like, were were the teachers unhappy with these results? 
Yeah, well, I think I think what what happened here was the te- the the leaders were equally as confused as the kids. Uh, it took them so long to grasp there was another language operating in the space, let alone even understanding it. Uh, and this is how they lost control. They weren't getting any feedback from the participants. Uh, they had no they had no idea uh, whether what they were saying was even getting through to them. And in this in this way, the leaders felt like they weren't doing their jobs. Mm they were only trying to reintegrate them into their society yeah exactly and i think the people who created these schemes were teaching these kids about a society that didn't exist anymore a society without computational media and online social networks the way that they were asking the kids to engage with others didn't even exist for people our age who who were seen to be not struggling with reintegrating this is super interesting um but i kind of have to ask why are you here talking to me then? You're making it sound as if these kids didn't have any facilities to engage with people on a, like a, I guess a linguistic level. And then here you are explaining it really coherently. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess I can see uh, how this doesn't amount to me sitting here in this room with you. But all this happened around 10 years ago and these communities came to be through various sets of circumstances. Uh, but I guess before we move on, uh, what I'm trying to get at is these schemes operated as a catalyst for zombies to exist in the real world and sort of live their lives in this sort of computational state of mind, uh, so to speak. But yes, let's move on. No, no, yeah. Uh, thanks for clarifying that. Um, and sorry to sorry to rush you through it. I'm just uh, wary that we're sort of uh, running out of time here. Yeah, I completely understand. Yeah. So, I mean, we're we're we've been in touch for a while, and I think what you're doing within your own community is really interesting. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. For sure, for sure. Uh, well, my route uh, to living with zombies was completely different. Uh, but first, I moved into a community in Pitt Meadows, which is just outside of Vancouver, around seven years ago. Uh, and during these seven years, I'm starting to see a new generation beginning to be raised in these environments. I'm imagining these kids are exactly the sort of people I would never get on this show. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think you could. <laughs> so... Um, so do these kids go to school and do they engage in online activities? Some parents make attempts at homeschooling their kids, but these educational formats have their limits. They're taught how to read, but it's not really for the purposes of reading lengthy articles. It's more like signal recognition. And then in, in terms of online, online activities, uh, yes, most kids engage in online activities. There are a few who don't though. Right, so, but so to delve a bit deeper in that, uh, what kind of activities do they engage in online? Mostly things that require, oh sorry, that don't require reading. Um, a lot of games, taking photos and videos, maybe posting them online. Uh, but the most common activity is listening to music. Music is actually really important to us, which I forgot to mention. It can, it can help us communicate with each other and it's, especially for new residents, it's super important. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so everyone is living in a movie all the time. Yeah, but I, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that that's something that's unique to our way of living. Um, actually, I think we have incorporated cinematic tendencies into our habits everywhere. We just have less corny monologues and more slow motion. <laughs> that's what I live for, buddy. Why do you think I got into the podcast station business? Um, so, but you said to me in an email. Uh, that you teach computer coding to some of these kids. Is that right? That's right. Right. So so what's that like? 
it's challenging in some ways, but it's a uh, much easier than teaching them common language. Uh, about a year ago, I began to really fear for these kids. And at the same time, I kind of see a, a, I could see a hopeful future for them and decided that in order for these communities to coexist with your world, uh, we would have to start putting in some of the work now. Mm, yeah. So how does this future look like or maybe the not so hopeful future? Well, firstly, it's jobs. Uh, this, this generation doesn't have great jobs, job prospects. Their parents still have their feet in, in your world and are able to work jobs remotely from their communities or make money advertising products through dance videos on social media. But this new generation doesn't have those same connections to your way of living. Uh, and they communicate meaning in a much more bodily and gestural way. And I guess it, I guess they're a bit closer to nature in that sense uh, as they are constantly processing physical information in front of them as opposed to words and sentences. But what they linguistically do understand is computerized cognitive processes, uh, which don't contain reason or rationale, which are, which are bound up by, by common language. Mm. So, so bearing that in mind, how do you implement something like this? Because these communities exist in most parts of the world, so I imagine that's a huge task to undertake. Well, we're at the beginning of this journey, but we've set up programs in other nearby communities, and for the most part, they've taken off successfully. And if some communities don't have access to coders that understand our ways of communicating, uh, I'm not sure how some of these groups will evolve. I know in some parts of the states, these communities have been forced out of their homes, uh, and onto the streets. And that, that's, what we, that's what we want to avoid, first of all. But at the core of it, I believe that we can make positive impact to the future coexistence of the natural and digital world. Right, that's, it sounds like you could have a big impact. Um, well, Jamie, unfortunately, we're gonna have to stop there as we've actually run out of time, but it's been a pleasure having you here with us. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come over. Thanks, Pete. It was a pleasure talking with you, even if it was a bit weird. <laughs> You're a natural, Jamie. You should talk more often. Uh, also, I feel uh, compelled by what you're trying to do. And I have to say to any coders listening to this, definitely get in touch with Jamie. Um, <laughs> he probably needs your help. Thanks, Pete. Uh, maybe you could post my email or handle when you when you put this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can totally do that. Regards, thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe if you haven't already or like what you've heard. Thanks, guys. Welcome back. You're listening to Future Artifacts FM. We've just listened to Nina's piece, Beyond the Virus. Um, Nina, thank you so much for coming on the show. And no, sorry, that's, that's, awesome. that's, that's <laughs> your host of the show. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed the work, Nina, and I guess one of the main things that I wanted to ask about was you introduced us to a future or an idea of what the future might look like. Um, I'm wondering why did you choose to introduce this future through an interview or through 
a podcast setting and of why this rather than perhaps, let's say, a film or plain text? So I was thinking about how to how to put sort of a put a story together or put this sort of narrative together. And I was going through different kinds of conversations. You know, I was sort of looking at interviews and then kind of narrowing that down to what different types of interviews there are, like a job interview um, or a podcast or whatever that might be. One thing that I wasn't actually, I wasn't thinking about at the time, uh, but probably influenced me or was deep in the back of my mind um, my mum, when we were on a, a, we went on a road trip across Canada when I was a kid, and my mum rented a tape recording of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, um, which, for those who might not know of it, I'm sure most people do, is a radio broadcast. So Orson Welles was hired by a radio station to produce radio plays, and for the the radio play War of the Worlds he decided to make it out as if it was a real broadcast. Um, So they kind of started it where they had like um, a symphony or a sort of live musical band playing. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen... This is Carl Phillips again, out at the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in 10 minutes. Well, I hardly know where to begin. To paint for you a word picture of a strange scene before my eyes, but... Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. That's the thing directly in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. But I can see the object itself doesn't look very much and like a And as that set was going, it was interrupted by, um, by news broadcasts, slowly kind of becoming the impending doom, kind of like starting to gradually build throughout the radio play. Mm. And the show was introduced as, the, as what it was, but loads of people would tune in later. And it ended up... Uh, becoming this sort of huge phenomenal event. After I made the pod, the fictional podcast, I kind of thought, oh, maybe this is something I don't want to put myself in the same like uh, canon as <laughs> Orson Welles. But I think that that was something that I was I quite enjoyed about the work that it was kind of doing that as well. Yeah, I think we've talked before, like this slow creep mm. of the fiction, kind of starting off by believing you're still within kind of the world as you would live it um, mm. and then ending up more and more in the fiction that the writer has given to you. Yeah. Which I guess leads me on to another question, which is how do you think this work then relates to the present? If you are making this version of the future, um, especially in thinking about social interactions using masks, so that quite specific thing of using facial expressions in the fictional podcast, how significant that becomes. You know, what happens to that when you only see people's eyes? Um, mm. And then I guess part of that question as well is, do you think in the speculative future that you've made, do you think it needs to be quite closely related to the present? 
There's one thing that I think is actually quite deceiving about the work is with the title Beyond the Virus and the sort of premise being about post-COVID. Um, that actually like wasn't the that wasn't the driving force behind the work. That kind of just arose. So basically I had all this research that I had made um, about various different things that have nothing to do with COVID. And then I kind of put all of that research into um, into that setting, basically. I kind of put it into the present, but speculating on where that will go forward, if that makes sense. It was kind of a, a mashup of a few different uh, things I was thinking about, like the present moment right now, and then I just linked it to my research. And then I thought, okay, if I put those two things together, where do we end up in 10 years? Because I think the one thing that does link the, the pandemic to my research is that um, there was a lot of stuff that I was thinking about before coronavirus ever came out. So when I was looking at TikTok quite a lot before we even knew about COVID. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, TikTok has become like this online nightclub and people are dancing and there's... I was going to the gym and seeing loads of young teenagers at the gym dancing on TikTok. And I thought, this is so different to what my teenage years were like. And then when COVID happened, suddenly everyone was, you know, nightclubbing or dancing at home. And so maybe that was kind of where the speculative fiction part kind of naturally was interesting to me. The pandemic basically like accelerated a lot of the things that I thought were kind of going to already happen. And but there was probably going to happen, I thought would have happened 10 years from now. Um, mm -hmm. And then suddenly, like with within a month of having that thought about it being the future, suddenly it was happening like a month later. And I thought that that was so strange yeah well, I guess there's always that thing in speculation where you're speculating you don't know mm. if this is actually going to happen you're just taking different things you have in the present and yeah fast forward fast forwarding them in a way yeah and I think I think we're like living in a really strange time right now where like everything is being a bit scrambled like as I said like there's things that I thought wouldn't have happened until 10 years from now and now they're actually happening and so to speculate from that from that standpoint is a really interesting position to take or to be in. Well, then maybe can kind of delve a little more into the work itself mm. where you're speaking about these zombie communities coming from these kind of concept houses or so on. Oh, co yes, yeah, so of content houses. Content houses. Yeah, and then... I guess part of me is wondering how much of, or like, what's the line between the work being fictional and factual? So, for instance, is Jamie Lewis a real person? That's a good question. Um, but I'll start, before I start maybe talking about Jamie Lewis, because he is actually loosely kind of, like, very, very loosely based on a real person. But the before I go into that, the process of writing, the process of writing it, actually wasn't as planned and like I kind of wrote it I think I wrote it in like one day mm -hmm. and it was just all these things that I had been coming across and thinking about just 
kind of went onto the page. So like my research had nothing to do with content houses, but I'd become really interested in content houses. And if people don't know what content houses is, it's a house where people live together and basically create content. So I think like the first, the earliest ones were uh, kind of big YouTubers and they'd, it's kind of like a house where you work and everyone in the house also does that similar kind of work. Um, but there were a few big ones for TikTok. I think one of the bigger ones was called Hype House. Um, and now some of those people who are part of Hype House are some of the biggest TikTokers. Or I think they've even maybe gone beyond TikTok now. But um, Sounds a bit like an academy or something almost. Yeah, it is kind of like a, it's like an academy slash cult. It's like, this yeah. Weird, yeah, it's really weird. Um, anyways, I won't go into that because it's not that super interesting. But like something like that just just like kind of came out into, onto the page when I was writing the script. Um, but to go back to um, Jamie Lewis... So I was reading a um, case for case study uh, a while back about a man named John Lewis who was on trial for the murdering of a police officer in Pennsylvania in 2009, I think. So he he did shoot the police officer, um, and what was on trial was whether it was first degree murder or second degree murder. Uh, which means what they're what they're looking for is whether there's intent behind his action. So the the action of him noticing the police officer to shooting him happened in two seconds. Um, and the only evidence that they had was surveillance footage um, of the of that action. Uh, but instead of playing it in real time, they played it in slow motion and. The case study that I was reading was was sort of proposing that you can't really see intent when you slow something down. It's like you can't really see um, see consciousness because consciousness exists in in its real time. Basically, his verdict was guilty of first. He was guilty of first degree murder, but because it was based off of this footage that didn't actually uh, represent the time. I was thinking about how um, this technology uh, can play around with our consciousness and can create like a heightened sense of consciousness. And that's sort of what happened in this trial. So that mixed as well with some research that I was doing about, um, well, not research. This wasn't research. I was just on TikTok, just like just scrolling through. That's still research. (laughs) Yeah. And there was also... um, there was also these loads of videos of these kids moving in slow motion. So one of the really famous ones or the one of the viral ones is people looking like they're walking on the spot, um, but they're walking in slow motion. But um, it's all happening in real time. It's not, uh, there's, no techno- there's no technology behind it. It's just like what it is and I was thinking about um about how um connected to this case where the technology for slow motion is um harnessed to kind of uh insert intent or extra consciousness into this I was thinking about how these teenagers were moving in slow motion and wondering whether they were kind of regaining their 
consciousness back, if that makes sense. I guess I'm also thinking about the length of a TikTok clip usually as well. Mm. There's Mm. that sense of like the time becoming more precious because as opposed to like a YouTube video, which might be, you know, five plus minutes, a TikTok clip is 30 seconds max. Yeah. Yeah. There's like this kind of duration of time. Um, Well, then I guess there's that sense of using Jamie Lewis in a way to kind of explore consciousness. So in terms of this like hybrid character, or at least I'm viewing Jamie Lewis as being this hybrid because Mm. he's become a spokesperson for these zombie communities. Mm. But he's not, he isn't fully one. Yeah, so I think that was sort of part of how I wrote the character. So maybe going back to how it's related, he's related to this guy, John, well, not related to John Lewis, but in my mind, like the characters are related. Um, And... I was kind of thinking, so I kind of cast cast him or wrote him um, as a as a NHL hockey player because I wanted to take his um, I wanted to take John Lewis's situation and take it out of like a maybe more politically charged situation because uh, I thought that that would become the focus of the work, which I didn't necessarily want it to be. And I was imagining that he might be a player that. Uh, was penalized or um, expelled from from the league that he was working within because slow motion footage made it look like he had done something more violent uh, than he than he actually intended to do. Another look at it. Tuzzi wanted him, piled on him, and you can see that his head hits the ice and everyone else piles on and that doesn't help. Unfortunately, like this was a lot of backstory, which I was trying to fit into the to the podcast, but I really wanted to sort of like stay true to the podcast form and I really wanted it to if I'd explained the whole thing in the podcast, it could have ended up being like two hours. So I tried to just write it and I think that's why I wrote it so quickly. I was like, I'm just gonna write it like it's a conversation. So I almost kind of had the conversation in my head and I said, if his backstory comes up, then then uh, I'll include it. And I think that's part of, um, uh, I sort of was imagining if John Lewis had been in a situation where it wasn't about murder, (laughs) what would he have, what would he have done if he uh, was expelled from something, but he wasn't given the death sentence and uh, he felt like he'd been wronged by by the jury or by this technology and what would he what would he go out and do um and that's why I think it was basically like I kind of put him in this setting I made him into this character that also um is existing in the time that is happening now where kids are starting to not use language as much and and he sort of gets drawn drawn to those kids who are resisting language they're resisting uh the way that people read into them basically yeah it feels like they've already kind of moved on from whatever society rejected jamie lewis Mm. and so he's or at least from listening to the podcast it feels like he finds a kinship with them because he Mm. can't be in what was his world before so he has to move to this new world yeah and then he sees their struggles and tries to 
Yeah, and I think maybe so. I'm, maybe I kind of confused it by saying that you know uh, these kids are resisting language. The kids aren't really resisting language. It's kind of more of like an uh, almost like a evolution that's mixed in with technology that's happening to these kids. And he um, and for Jamie Lewis, he's sort of got all this like uh, pent up energy that he that he needs to expel somewhere. And he sees this happening to these kids, so he kind of comes in and tries to lead them. Uh, and their situations in a way that will that will make them integrate into society or survive on their own. So not quite a cult leader, but I could see how someone could see that. Maybe as a bit of a cult figure, but I think he's he's trying to do the right thing. <laughs> he feels more like the cool uncle to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess as you're talking about the way that you in a way, constructed the podcast. Mm. It sounds like speculative fiction was really a tool to sort of combine and put narrative to mm. your research. What do you view speculative fiction as doing for you? Is it a tool? Is it mm. a way to provide narrative? I think, yeah, I guess it is sort of a, it's a tool, but it's a tool that I'm kind of like still, fig I'm still figuring out. I'm not so sure exactly um where I want it to go because I guess as I said before like I kind of expected it to be this moving image work and then now it's a now it's a radio play or not radio play now it's a fictional podcast I think what what surprised me the most was the ease that I had with writing it um and it basically it kind of helped me formulate my views on what's happening right now but in a you know it's not my it's my opinion. It's not fact, obviously. And I think it's a really nice way to explore um, what you think is happening right now, basically, um, and putting it into a future setting. Or, or it could be, it doesn't have to be future. It could be in the past. When I think of uh, speculative fiction, I sometimes think about dystopias. Like, I feel like a lot of people who do speculative fiction not all usually kind of presenting like a utopia or a dystopia like I'd say like quite heavily on the dystopic side and I think for this I kind of I really wanted it to sit not um like right in between utopia and dystopia I didn't want it to fall either way so you know I kind of present the situation that could be seen as you know like these kids are losing language oh poor them what's going to happen to them but then also I kind of offer like a, a maybe like a hopeful kind of future for them. But and then also it's not and then what's happening to them also isn't bad. It's like that they see it as good, but people from the outside might see it as bad. And I think I kind of enjoy the mundaneness of it. And I, I actually find speculative fiction, the speculative fiction that I think interests me the most is actually when it's kind of a bit mundane. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess there can be this all or nothing effect. I'm thinking, for instance, when political parties get elected into office and let's say you don't agree with their politics. In some cases, it is an all or nothing, but there can be such a sense at the end of it that like everything's going to crash down. Like when people are still living their lives, yeah. life is still going on. And the feeling I get from your podcast is there is still this sense of life continues. This is the mundane. There are people who don't communicate verbally anymore. They communicate through facial expressions, through mm. 
TikTok, through dance, through body movement. What I enjoy about the, it being so mundane is that um, it's like, I think we can constantly be going back and forth in real life of feeling like we're in a utopia or a dystopia. And I think when I look forward, like, or if you think to the past, there's always been moments in past where you where you read about people thinking that it's the end of the world or people thinking that they're living at the best time ever, that they're living in a utopia. And I think I was kind of looking forward and I was thinking that's probably what will happen in the future. Like, we'll always be living in both a dystopia and a utopia. So um, I think to present the future in in that sort of binary way is never going to be... Um, I mean, none of it will ever be close to the truth because it's fiction. But I think it's like, it's kind of denying the fiction any sort of reality. Yeah, because I guess what becomes quite clear from our conversation is that even though this is speculative, it's all very much based in your research and it's based in fact from mm. the present and the past. Mm. And while it's building something newer as you go into it more and more mm. it kind of it situates you through the present yeah one thing i'm quite interested in in terms of speculative fiction or science fiction in general is the lens it creates on the present so yeah. for instance thinking about even the way we portray the past based on what decades it's in mm. so i'm thinking of like the great gatsby movie the right. 1970s version of it the mm. costumes look very 70s. The 2010s version of it, there's a very like 2010s cinematic glam on top of it. Yeah. How do you think your kind of future version is both impacted by the fact that you wrote this sort of like in the middle of the pandemic in a way? Because mm. I think you were saying before, like you wrote this sort of like after around this time last year, no? Yeah, I think it was... Oh, no, I think it was what, like maybe about six months ago. Like, I mm -hmm. think it was when we were in the second lockdown that I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'm wondering how both you think your perception of that moment in the present shaped it. Like, do you feel yeah. you would have written it very differently if you wrote it right now as we're opening up? Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's something that I uh, I do. I, I was thinking about on my way here. I was actually <laughs> thinking about... Uh, what our relationship to the pandemic is now like you know listening listening to that podcast six months ago is very different to listening to it now I mean like we're not completely out of out of the pandemic um but there is kind of an end in sight now and I guess there aren't these reintegration schemes and kids aren't uh kids aren't losing language um but actually um I, I should mention and it's kind of going on a bit of a tangent but the first time I actually sh um, showed this podcast to a group of friends uh, which was all on Zoom I kind of played it to some people on Zoom uh, a guy had to leave earlier earlier and he messaged me later to say that he had to leave he said sorry I had to leave but I had to go tutor a 19 year old kid who actually doesn't know how to read <laughs> and does a lot of stuff on TikTok. And it was the first, like, oh, it was almost like a piece of evidence, like, mm -hmm. to me. I was like, this is, like, the first thing that I was like, oh, my gosh. It's not it's not real, and nor do I, like, I'm not expecting it to come real, and I don't think that 
the work will be more successful if this becomes real or not. But I felt like um, it was excited that there were even more links to the present than there actually than I thought there were. It was like it's kind of like adding, it's bringing more into it. Well, I guess that's part of the joy in making work and sharing work with people is you get these little... You get feedback. Yeah. Yeah, you get these funny stories of like, oh, you realize that's actually, that is happening in a way. Yeah. I mean, are there any elements in Beyond the Virus that you hope don't happen or... Jamie Lewis mentions how he doesn't want the thing that's happening in the States, which is kids being thrown out onto the streets or these communities being thrown out onto the streets because they don't know how to integrate into society. They don't know how to get jobs or make money. And so they get kind of thrown out onto the street like vermin. That little bit is something that I hope doesn't happen, but it's also kind of a little nod to a piece of work um, like a book fictional story that I'd been reading already, which I'd come across uh, kind of when I was doing the research and thinking about this, I came across this book, which was about um, kids who were losing the ability for language and um, based on a based on a virus, actually. <laughs> um, but it was a virus that was within them and... Uh, and that's and the book starts kind of at the end of the story, and that's basically what's happened is that the these people that don't speak are kind of turned into uh, pests, like they're basically pests, and they're they they're similar to raccoons or coyotes or foxes. Yeah, can you share the name of the book with us? Yes, of course. It is called uh, "The Silent History" by I've written down the names here so I don't forget it because it's by three authors uh, called Eli Horovitz. Kevin Mofield, Math and Matthew Derby. The book is actually so I I bought the book version, but it actually is a post print book, which was originally a um, an app. So the app takes you through these field reports, which are all sort of fictional field reports that um, make up the story. And there's also a there's also this sort of function on the app where you can go to a map which has gps installed in it so you can see where you are on this map and you can go to any of the locations that they have on the map and you can access um you can access field reports if you're actually there so those field reports aren't in the book and i did go to a couple of the locations in london but then i just i ended up buying the book and actually funnily enough i'm not actually not someone that it's a massive book and i just don't enjoy reading massive books but it was this weird thing where it was like where you go, oh, I'm not going to read the book. I'll just watch the, the film. <laughs> and it was like, I'm not going to read the, um, read the app. I'm just going to buy the book. It like kind of like it like tricked me into buying this massive book and reading the whole thing. I felt like I was cheating. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it, when you're looking at post, post print books, mm. and they're trying to play between the two mediums. So I think before we were talking before about this book, and part of it is that new sections of the book get released or it gets released over time Mm. I guess there's always that sort of play in speculative fiction of what time are you actually in which Mm. leads me to another question about your work we don't know when it's set Mm. is that yeah well so this is something that I think is kind of interesting because it's like the 
the work is set 10 years after the pandemic ends. So I feel like the, so there actually isn't like a date yet of like when it is because the pandemic isn't over. (laughs) Or will there be a date? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, yeah, there might not be a date. So maybe like this, maybe maybe this never happens. Like, Yeah, not to be too pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's, yeah, I mean, so it's, yeah, 10, 10 years after the pandemic. My last question then that I want to ask you about the podcast is within the interview with Jamie, they talk about cinematic effects um, mm. in TikTok and also sort of, I guess I'm thinking of like how cinema sort of frames and condenses things in certain ways when you were writing about that cinematic effect what were you thinking about it in relation to so the the line that he talks about there's one specific line where jamie lewis kind of goes back to the kind of responds to the interviewer responds to pete and says well you live in a you sort of live in a cinematic world as well i was thinking about how how people talk like they're in a movie sometimes it's like and you can almost like hear the hear the music in the background as they're telling like a a really like heartfelt story and you can tell that they think about it in a sort of cinematic way there is a bit that relates to the um to the john lewis case study or that sort of area of research and i um just wrote an article recently about slow motion technology and how it was initially meant to be used for um, for scientific purposes or for people to improve their craft or skills like gymnasts and scientists to be more accurate with the information that they're getting. But then film, like early filmmakers started to use slow motion to kind of almost inject... Uh, an extra kind of narrative within slow motion. And so some, one of the earliest users of it um, used slow motion to sh- like encapsulate the last dying breaths of a character. And it's this moment where like the, where the soul leaves the body and you can almost see the soul leave the body. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, it's not completely related, but it's kind of related to this, like if you can, if consciousness is something you can see, then you might be able to see it leave the body. Um, but then, of course, like the, it became part of cinematic language, which is now used in advertising and, or music videos. And that's kind of part of this language that I'm thinking about these kids uh, using. It's kind of this, like, mediated language. It doesn't require um, spoken words or, like, sort of common language. So the slow motion becomes a way to, I guess, I mean, you spoke before about it almost bringing back, I guess I'm thinking a form of autonomy or consciousness to your movement rather than being part of this large, I mean, TikTok in a way is essentially like a broadcast center. If you make your video, yeah. you broadcast through it. Yeah. Um. So in this way, kind of feeding your way through things, is kind of trying to regrain that consciousness, like giving the time to process in a way perhaps or... yeah I guess it's also sort of I guess maybe what I'm saying is that um not very eloquently um saying that there's kind of this um there's this language a sort of cinematic language that we all understand now and is used so heavily day to day now like on TikTok but it's also 
we use it in the way that we talk and but it's like kind of this like the fact that I know that someone's telling me about their their hardships but they're they're kind of maybe just telling me a really mundane story but I know that there's a I know that there's like a another thing behind it I know that what they're trying to get through is like a feeling there's a feeling that they're trying to uh express to me and I know that because I can almost hear the music in the background (laughs) um and I think that um yeah and I think that's kind of that's not it but that is the the language that I think is that I'm kind of starting to see and carve out carve out carve out Well, that's about all we have time for. Thank you so much, Nina. Great. Thank you. Great. So thank you for listening. This has been Future Artifacts FM with your hosts, Nina Davies and Neve Schmidtke. This is a monthly radio show about speculative fiction hosted through RTM Radio. Great. And um, next next month, the next broadcast, we will be talking about uh, Neve's radio play. Um, so we'll see you back in a month's time. Bye. Bye.
Let's just start this on back. I'm gonna call him. Piece of gun We are at Chick Wheels get to call You <laughs> 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 